We are in a series in Genesis 1 through 11, and uh, the last two weeks we took um, a hiatus. We talked about the Holy Spirit. We're back. Now we're going to be talking more about the wrath of God. Yay. Next week, actually, is, uh, is going to be on the Noahic covenant. That's the covenant that God made with Noah, and why that matters, you might know it as the rainbow covenant. Um, so what you may not know is um, kind of how some of these sermons come together. I, I want to bring you behind the scenes a little bit. Um, pastor Craig is our church, plant pa- church planting pastor. Um, we launched Village Church East in Carroll Stream just over a year ago. And Pastor Craig and I actually preach on the same text, the same notes that you get, they're getting over there, uh, the same outline, the same community group questions. So I would say probably 45 weeks out of the year, we're on the same page. And every Monday morning, Craig and I, um, and some of our staff, and some of you sometimes, uh, we come together at Starbucks on Irving Park and 59. We get caffeinated and we study together for two to four hours. And uh, it's a great opportunity. We go through the text we're preaching on, we bring out an outline, and we ask a lot of questions. And and it's actually been one of the most encouraging things for me personally to study a sermon every single week with someone else. So throughout the week, actually, uh, Craig and I will send each other our sermon notes, see where we're at, see how it's being developed. You can actually listen to Craig's sermons. And what's interesting is that even though we have the same main point, the same text, the same outline, and the same community group questions, the sermons almost always have nothing to do with each other. So it's actually great entertainment. But um, two questions nagged at Craig and I. This week, from these chapters, Genesis 6 through 8, and uh, here are the two questions that really just kind of stuck out to us. Number one, why Noah? Okay, so why save him and destroy everybody else? Now, generally speaking, I think we can give the answer, Noah was more righteous, but here's what I really wanted to know and Craig wanted to know. Um, What did he do that was righteous? Like, I'm, I'm looking at the story of Noah, and I'm thinking, okay, God, you're going to destroy the world again. Like, like is there anything that, that, like, you particularly love when your people do that just sets them apart? Like, how can I do those things? How can I learn to grow in those things? How can I be more like Noah? Uh, that's the first question we wanted to get very specific with. The second question we wanted to get specific with was, why destroy everybody? Now, again, we know the general answer. The world was really wicked and terrible. But I wanted, I wanted to know, what did the world do that really, really pushed God to the edge? So, so like in Genesis 5 and 6, when God basically says, I'm done, 120 years from now, I'm destroying everybody. I want to know what pushed God over the edge. Like, what, what was he watching? And he said, that's it, that's it, I'm done. Like, we're done, we're going to the next level here. Everyone's going to die, right? I want to know what those are. So one of our practices is that when we teach on narrative or stories in the Old Testament, um, we look to see if the New Testament has anything to say about the characters in the story. And the New Testament often sheds incredible light on the Old Testament narratives. And what's interesting is that a passage came up in 2 Peter chapter 2. And so if you would, open up your Bibles there. And what's interesting is that 2 Peter chapter 2 actually answers both of our questions. Why Noah specifically? And why destroy everybody? So we're going to spend a little bit of time in 2 Peter, and then we'll come back to Genesis. And uh, we're going to again do a flyover of Genesis chapters 6 through 8. So the first question I want to deal with is, why destroy everybody? Your notes might say something a little bit different, so just scratch off what's there, and you can write what I have on the screen. Uh, So 2 Peter, here's what's happening. Um, In 2 Peter, uh, there are false teachers. And the true, genuine Christians are wondering, God, when are you going to judge these false teachers? They're using your people, exploiting your people. 
people, taking advantage of your people? Do you ever just turn on the TV and you see false teachers everywhere using people, exploiting people, living immoral lives? As a pastor, I'm like, okay, they make my life really hard because when people meet me and they hear that I'm a pastor, I have to somehow in a very short period of time convince them that I'm not like those uh, hooligans. Like, I'm not like that. And because I get all of the residue, people transfer this to myself and to all of our staff whenever they meet us. And, and so here's what they're asking. The, the church is saying, when is God going to have justice? Like, this should upset God. When's God going to come in and wipe out all the false teachers? And I think it's a great question. I've often wondered that. Why does God let these people have this radio and TV ministry for decades and decades and decades and decades? Why does he let these evil men fly all over the world on their private jets, taking money from the poor, exploiting people and living immoral lives? Like, I wonder this on a regular basis, and it feels like God, again, is on a different timetable than I'm on. And, and so here's what he's going to do. He's going to give three examples. If you ever want to know whether or not God will execute justice, look to the book of Genesis, and here's what happens. He says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So there are some angels that are well, just demons that you'll never interact with because they have been set aside because they're so evil that God would not even unleash them on the earth. Okay? He goes on and gives another one. If he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction. Isn't that powerful? He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So we're getting closer. Okay, I get it. Generally speaking, God doesn't like ungodliness. And we see this kind of rule that if every single person in the world or a city is ungodly, then he'll just wipe them out. But if there's two righteous people or five righteous people, God will slow it down, right? In America, we have hundreds of thousands of people who profess the name of Christ or millions of people. Uh, so we're not anywhere near this. But here's the, here's the idea, right? Um, why would God absolutely ex like cause Sodom and Gomorrah to be extinct? Why would he obliterate all life on the earth except for Noah and his family? Okay, we get it. There's no one godly. There's no one who loves God. Fine. Verse seven goes on. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the world, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And this is supposed to be an encouragement, right? You're reading about all these terrible stories, but if you are one of God's children, like even though the whole world gets swept up in a flood, will you be swept up if you've trusted in Jesus Christ? Never, not a chance. Here's what he said, he can rescue the, the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So now in verse 10, we're gonna get to the answer. What pushed God to the edge specifically? What really, really, really breaks God's heart? Watch this. Especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. This double-edged sword is deeply, deeply personal to God. Um, this is a sermon that could 
so easily mean nothing to the vast majority of American Christians because we, by and large, have a low view of authority and a low view of sexual immorality. And so one of the most interesting, I think, subjects that come out of this is, wow, if there was ever a warning and an encouragement for the American church, it's almost like, I think maybe we have made a very small deal of things that are very, very significant to the heart of God. When God saw their sexual immorality, unhindered passion, and their complete hatred for authority, globally, he looked at the world and said, I am done 120 years and this whole thing is going to be destroyed. Let's talk about despising authority just for a moment. When there's no authority, there are no rules. When there are no rules, anarchy reigns. That's very common sense, that's logical, that should not be a surprise. And then we begin to understand when there is no rules, there is anarchy, we get to Genesis 6-5 and we begin to make sense of what's happening in Genesis. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that, this is crazy, like nobody here can even relate to this, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Here's what that means. There wasn't one redeemable, kind, good, respectful thought or idea that came out of their heart and mind. Nothing. Every idea they came with, every thought that they had was vile. It was vile. It's a powerful statement here. We get to the indulging, of, uh, the indulging lust. Sexual immorality, it's the natural and necessary byproduct of a life without authority. The reason, I want you to hear me, the reason you are indulging right now, whoever you are, in sexual immorality, whether it's your porn addiction or otherwise, is because you actually buck authority, because you have an authority issue, because you don't like being told what to do. And I'm telling you, this is one of those things that when God sees someone who bucks authority, it pushes him to the edge. God has such a high value for those who submit themselves to authority. I want to share with you from Genesis 19, uh, verses 4 and 5. This is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah because um, I do think that when we hear these stories, it's really hard for us to capture how vile it was. And so this story is the tip of the iceberg. This is, the, this is like probably one of the most tame realities of these people's daily existence. And this happened after the flood. And what God is trying to show you in Genesis 19 is the kind of immorality that was happening before the flood. So if you remember Lot, uh, Lot is in Sodom and Gomorrah, and two angels come to evaluate the state of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot sees the angels, and he says, come home with me, let me take care of you. And they say, no, we're gonna spend the night outside in the, in the village, basically square. Well, he knows they're gonna be killed and vile things will happen to them if they, if they stay there. So he pleads with them and he brings them in, he feeds them and they're about to go to sleep and here's what happens. You have to pay attention to the nuance of this because the horror of these daily realities is in the nuance. But before they, the angels lay down the men of the city, the men of Sodom. Now, the author wants you to know who this is, both young and old. So we're talking 80-year-olds and five-year-olds. All the people to the last man surrounded the house. I mean, this is of your worst nightmare. This is a horror movie that leaves you with thoughts for years, and they called a lot. 
I mean, you imagine them banging on the walls of the house, on the front door. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them, that we might, as a group, violate them sexually and leave them dead. This is the tip of the iceberg. This is the result of not just the first generation, but the third and fourth generation, when the mom and the dad despise authority, give themselves over to sexual indulgences, then the next generation takes their sin, takes it to a new level. Then the third generation takes it to an ultimate level. And this is what you see in scripture, you see it in life. What you find is that kids don't just repeat the sins of their mom and dad, but they amplify the sins of their mom and their dad. I wanna get to my second question. So why Noah? Like what was it that Noah was doing specifically that God looked at him and he said, I'm gonna use him, that guy. So I, I found, generally speaking, there are two reasons why God would set some, somebody apart, why God would use somebody. Uh, here's the first reason. Um, I've learned that God chooses to work through people specifically um, that you would never expect. Um, people that I look at their life and I'm thinking, I don't understand, God, why you're using them. Like, I feel like their private life or their personal life is not something that you would be very excited to use. But sometimes I think God loves to use people that we would never expect so that he gets all the glory. Does that make sense? But sometimes there's a second reason that I find God loves to use someone. He looks at them, and there is something about their heart that is really distinct, there, there's something about the quiet places of their heart where he looks at this person and he says, look, everybody's good on the surface, but there's something about your heart. There's something about who you are. There's something about the secret places of your mind and your heart that nobody sees, that God sees, that is really, really distinct. You remember David? David was a young man. He was a kid, maybe 11, 12, 13 years old, and God is looking at the mind and the heart of all of Israel, trying to figure out who could really lead my people. And he finds in the heart and the mind of this kid qualities. He's like, ah. You are distinct. I'm not going to pick any of the religious leaders, any of the super spiritual people. I'm not going to pick the rich people. I'm going to pluck out this kid because there's something about this kid's heart that is really, really, really distinct. So my question is, so did God pick Noah because he was a loser and he wanted all of us to know that God can use anybody? Or did God pick Noah? Did he pluck him out because there was something really unique and distinct about Noah's heart. I, wa I wanna just give you a flyover of Genesis six and seven and everything the Lord says about Noah and his heart. Genesis six, eight. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Genesis six, nine, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. I love this, Noah walked with God. Who else walked with God earlier? Pop quiz, anybody know? Enoch, thank you. Enoch was taken up to be with the Lord. Noah, Genesis 6, 22, he did this. Now, you don't know what this is necessarily, but this is he um, built the ark to the exact specifications over 120 years, long-term obedience in the same direction. He did this. He built the ark exactly the way God said to build this. He did all that the Lord commanded him. Genesis 7, 1, then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Genesis 7, 5, and Noah did all 
that the Lord had commanded him. All right, what specifically? Give me the details. What set Noah specifically apart? When God looked at Noah, why did God say, I'm not just gonna save you because you're a loser and I wanna make an example of everybody that I get all the glory. I, I, I wanna save you because there's something about your heart, there's something about who you are, there's something about the core of your person that I wanna use you. I want to make a covenant with you. I want your name to go down in the history books. I want you to be used to do great things to save the entire world. I want to use you. I want to pluck you out. Here are two things that he did. Number one, Noah was a man under authority. Number two, Noah said no to all the sexual indulgences and opportunities all around him. Noah was a man under authority, and Noah said no. Now, Noah was not perfect, right? But Noah was distinct, Noah was not perfect. David, was David perfect? No, <laughs> he sure wasn't. But he was distinct. He was set apart. He was unique. When God looked at his heart, he said that. I can do something with this. So, by the way, this twofold under authority and saying no to sexual indulgences. I want to just land here for a moment, okay? Um, you go all the way back to the first century when people first became Christians. And uh, there's a problem that we have, I think, in America, and the problem is this. Anybody can trust in Christ and it has no immediate demand on your life. Um, you can come to Christ and maybe or maybe not you'll change your life. But it was very interesting because in the first century, if you came to faith in Jesus Christ, um, it was not just believe in Jesus and you'll be saved, although that is true and that's what it was. There were cultural understandings that were really, really profound in this time. And so if you were to come to faith in Jesus Christ, if you were to make that profession, here's what you knew that you knew that you knew. You knew, number one, that you were going to be rejecting all authority but Jesus Christ and his word. Um, you knew this because Rome hated Christians because Christians put the word of God and Jesus Christ as a higher authority than Rome. They were a threat to the empire. And so here's what you knew. You knew you were going to have a higher authority. So if it came between your life and Jesus, you gave up your life, even if it meant despising Rome. Okay, that's, that's number one. But number two, you knew that you knew that you knew that if you came to Jesus Christ, your entire lifestyle was going to have to change immediately. Most Christians, uh, most people who become Christians don't understand these two concepts. And, and I, I want to help you understand this maybe a little bit better. I want you to imagine someone comes up to you and they say this to you. I want to invite you to join my cult. Okay, let's just pause for a moment. If someone says that, run, go very far away. But let's just say you're not smart and you say, I'll consider it. Okay, good. Um, the name of our cult is, wait for it, Spicy Salsa. Our cult, they say to you, does two things. Number one, first, we put spicy salsa on everything we eat, no questions asked. Second, you're not allowed to join us unless you commit to putting spicy salsa on all your food for the rest of your life. Are the expectations crystal clear? Yeah, you know it, right? If you're gonna join the club that says, that's called spicy salsa, you know. Welcome to first century Christianity. They knew. There were no questions. We have a new authority, and we kill sexual immorality and indulgences all around us in every way. That was the deal. Now, did they believe this was works-based salvation? No, no. I mean, the spicy salsa cult crew, they could look at you and say, you don't have to do anything to join. It's free. But if you join, count the cost. Because for the rest of your life, no matter where you go, you might go to someone's house. They might have made the best filet on the planet. You pull out your spicy salsa, and you pour it on. 
Brand name only, right? None of this other stuff that weakens the hot, right? Habaneros or ghost peppers, whatever they do. You get the point. Everywhere you go now, it doesn't matter where you at, you are now living under the, this authority. And then you go to someone's house, you say, you know what, I'm just not gonna do it right now. And the cult leaders find out, they're gonna call you and say, but you made a deal. You made a deal to put spicy sauce on everything. Are you ashamed? Do you really wanna be a part of this, of, this, of this group? You get the point, it's ridiculous. But this is how early Christianity understood coming to faith in Jesus Christ. You had a clear authority and it's Jesus Christ and his word and there's no getting around this. And number two, you submitted your life to this authority and you got rid of all sexual immorality and indulgences wherever they were found. No adult came to Christ in the first century without committing their life to the authority of Jesus Christ and killing sexual immorality in their life. The more and more familiar and common Christianity gets, the less of a priority these two things become. So I wanna go to point number two in your notes. What about me? What about me? What does this mean for me? So if you're a Christian, like Noah, here are two things that I think every Christian should say. Two things that every single Christian in this room should say. Number one, I am happily under authority, happily. I fully understand, by the way, that some of the stuff I'm gonna tell you, if you are a consumer Christian, you're just gonna make no sense whatsoever. If you've been hurt by authority, you're gonna be very resistant to this, I get this. But I'm telling you that God's will for every human alive is that we, myself included, are under authority. I wanna share with you four levels of authority. Here's the first level, final authority. Jesus in his word, if he says it, we believe it. If he teaches it, we do it. This is it. You come to Jesus Christ, and when you place your faith in him, although it does not require any works whatsoever, it is a free gift for anybody who trusts in Jesus Christ. You have to know this. This is a commitment to believe whatever he says is true, despite how inconvenient it is to our liberal cultural elites or our conservative cultural elites. It does not matter whether or not uh, um, they are going to ostracize you or slander you or if people on Facebook don't like you, I mean, don't be a jerk. If they're mad at you because you're a jerk, that's your own problem, right? But we believe what Jesus says is true and we submit our life to his word, period. No questions asked. We don't try to get around it or find alternate routes around this. Um, This is it. This is what we do. And so I think this is one of the most powerful things that every Christian needs to understand. Uh, in my home, as we raise our kids, uh, the word of God is the final authority. That's it. That's it. And there's another level to this. The second level is familial authority. It starts with your parents. As you grow up in the home, if you live in their home, your parents have authority over you. When you become a man or woman, you move out, you get married, all that good stuff, um, authority changes to a sense, but respect never changes, and there is always a semblance of authority from a mom and a dad in your life. Uh, you find in actually the, the, the Old Testament that the nature of a father's authority never went away fully just because the kids got married or the kids moved out. There's this deep cultural respect for the parents. Now, the parents understand that you have a new family, right? Um, but there's still this deep respect. Uh, if I could look at kids, and I would just say to every kid in, in the room, um, one of the worst things you can do for your relationship with God is to dishonor and disrespect and disobey your mom and your dad. It is so near and dear to the heart of God. Now, if your mom and dad ask you to sin, do you sin? The answer is, say no, Goshville Church. Give me a no on that one. No, right? Wake up here, right? I know it's hot outside, but we're here. You don't sin. But God has such a high view of familial authority. Uh, Number three, 
spiritual authority, your elders and your spiritual leaders. Now here's a, um, an interesting just kind of insight for you. Some of you come from backgrounds where the senior pastor is in charge of everybody and reports to nobody. That is not the case at Village Church. Um, the elders are my spiritual authority. And uh, as a team, we have the privilege to be the spiritual authority of this church. Um, but I myself submit to this group of men. They're an incredible group of men who love me and love my family. Um, the elders over the last 20 some years at Village Church has been a different group of people, but I've made a decision in my life from the very moment I came into this church that I would submit to their authority unless they asked me to sin. Uh, true story, 2008, um, I went to our elders and I wanted to leave Village Church really badly. Um, I wanted to go someplace else. I didn't feel like this was the right place for me. My wife, on the other hand, was saying, I don't wanna leave. I don't think you should leave. The Lord's not done with you. And I said, you don't know what you're talking about. And I went to the elders and I said, I will do whatever you tell me to do and I asked them to pray for me and the elders came back to me and said, you're not done. And so I stayed because I am a man under authority. Now I understand for many people that that is not comfortable for you. Um, but Jesus Christ has instituted multiple levels of authority for every human being, no matter how old you are, for our protection and for our good. A man or a woman without authority will eventually fall into multiple kinds of sin. And I would say most men without authority fall into sexual sin on a regular basis. Your spiritual authority. Number four, civil authorities. Christians should be known for our respect for police, political leaders, our bosses. I put all of this into the civil category. These are institutions, the workforce, the police force, politics, that kind of just keep society in check. And so one of the things that I think every Christian needs to do is we need to check ourselves. Whenever a police officer pulls us over, I got pulled over recently and my kids were in the back seat and the police officer was not nice and I wanted to have major attitude with him, but I was thinking my kids are watching me. I need to be nice. And uh, in fact, if you want to know why I got pulled over, I'll just tell you. Um, I got pulled over last year and I didn't have my driver's license. Oh, I did. It was under my seat, but I couldn't go under my seat to get it because I didn't want to think I had a gun. I said, it's under my seat. And he said, I'm not letting you get it. So I said, all right. So he gave me a ticket. I went to court, showed them that I had my driver's license, and they never filed it. So my driver's license had been suspended for the last six months. So he pulls me over and he says, I should arrest you right now, tow your car, but since you have kids in there, I'm not going to do that. And I, when he pulled me over, I said, I literally have no idea what you're talking about. And he's like, yeah, that's what everybody says. And I'm like, no, I don't think you understand. I don't have a category of anything that's happening right now. Just attitude, attitude. And I wanted to be like really, really snippy with him. But I'm thinking, my kids are learning how to honor and respect police officers by the way that I talk to him. So the guy leaves and lets us go home and, and uh, my kids were very aware of his curmudgeon attitude and, and uh, I basically said, I bet he had a really bad day. You know, I, I mean, I'm trying to give him the benefit of the doubt and empathy and, and again, this guy pulls over people all the time who lie to his face constantly, right? Who am I? He doesn't know me. Oh, I'm a pastor. Sure you are. Anybody can make anything up, right? Anyway, civil authority, police, taxes, political leaders, your bosses. I am happily under authority. In American Christian culture and in American culture, this will not likely be mandated on you. This is a personal decision that each and every follower of Jesus decides to make. Who are your spiritual authorities? Who are your familial authorities? And can you say with clarity that Jesus Christ and his word are 
my final authority. This is actually one of the reasons why we are so in favor of church membership because church membership is our way of knowing, look, I'm all in, you are a spiritual authority, we're responsible to you. As leaders, we commit to serving you and building you up. We know who's here and we know this and it's one of the most important things I think that we do as a church. There's about 100 other reasons for church membership but those are some of the most important. Here's the second thing that, like Noah, I think every single Christian should be able to say. I have supernatural self-control. I have, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, I have supernatural self-control. Uh, Galatians 5, through 24, you know this. This is the fruit of the Spirit. What are the letter, what's the word in blue? Self-control. If you have the Holy Spirit, do you have it? Yes, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. By the way, passions and desires in the New Testament is almost an indirect or direct reference almost every time to some kind of sexual passion and desire because the Roman world valued itself on just giving itself over sexually. It is a, a erotic rites for one of the most, um, we'll just say, important rites for the Roman people. And if you were a Roman citizen, you had erotic rites. We see this coming back in our culture. And here's what happens. The Apostle Paul is telling the church in Galatia, the culture may tell you you have erotic rights, but you take your sexual rights and you submit them to the authority of Jesus Christ and his word. Now, some of you, um, my kids try saying this all the time, I don't, I don't have self-control. My response is, do you have the Holy Spirit? And they say, yes. I'm like, well, then you have self-control. There's no excuse. You have the ability. Now, I want to convince you for a moment that you have self-control, um, no matter who you are, Christian, or non-Christian. I'm convinced that self-control is something that is given to every human being alive, and that what the Holy Spirit does for us is he steps up what you already have, and he gives you unusual power. So let's just talk about all of humanity, and why I believe all of humanity has self-control. I want you to imagine with me for a moment, no cults this time, just guns and children. So I want you to imagine that um, somebody takes your firstborn son, puts a gun to their head, and says, if you look at one more lustful image, I will pull the trigger. Do you look at the lustful image? Porn addiction resolved. So here's the, here's the deal. You do have self-control. You don't believe the cost is great enough. Do you see the difference? We have control. We don't believe that the cost is great enough. Now, you trust in Jesus Christ. Do you still have self-control? The answer is absolutely. You have the ability to control yourself. Now you have the Holy Spirit who is a truth teller, a convictor, a helper, an equipper, a trainer who comes alongside of you. Have you ever noticed in moments where you're like really tempted to sin, strange things start happening, strange thoughts go through your mind. Don't do this, you're a moron. You know what the word says, right? You guys know that, right? Uh, I'll give you another example of why I know you have self-control. You start fighting with your spouse or your kids um, and the things you say to them when you believe nobody is listening are pretty much like not great, okay? But then all of a sudden you have the same fight in front of a counselor or a pastor or your friends. Um, do you have remarkable self-control in those moments? I do, <laughs> right? Why? Because the cost is greater. If I believe the cost is high enough, my control is unbelievable. And this is why with my children, I have to raise the cost if I want them to obey sometimes. Their lack of perceived self-control, well, I'm just, I don't wanna do that. I'm like, okay, if you talk to me like that one more time, here's the cost. They have remarkable self-control when they understand the cost. It's amazing. 
Here's what we find. When you have the Holy Spirit, you don't just have self-control, you have supernatural self-control. You have an unusual ability to say no to whatever opportunities are in front of you. I think most Christians rely more on grace than supernatural self-control. So we say, it'll be fine, Jesus' blood covers it. I'm sorry, that is offensive to Jesus Christ. Bigger than just getting away with it, let me just, let me just tell you what I want. I want God to look at me like Noah. I don't want him to say, oh, there's a, there's a guy, he's going to heaven, but he's pretty much useless, and he basically justifies his life of sin because of the cross. I can't do much with him. That guy, that girl. She submits to authority. She has supernatural self-control. She says no. All these opportunities, he says no. He has all these opportunities to be a fool. He just says no. He, he trusts me. And I want God to be able to look at me. I don't want to just get away with stuff. I don't want to just get to heaven. I want God to look at me like he did Noah and say, Noah, I can use you. And I'm going to give you a job. It's going to take you 120 years. You're going to be humiliated and mocked and ridiculed by all of the world. You're going to preach good news that floods are coming, but they can get in the boat. and They're going to reject you, and they're all going to die. Everything you have ever known is real and true. You're going to sit in a boat and get motion sickness for like a really long time. Trust me. I want, I want God to be able to ask me to do something like that. But here's, here's the challenge. That if you're really going to be somebody who is under authority and who uses supernatural self-control, he will ask you to do hard things. Because that, I'm telling you, that is where God begins to use people in major ways. Like if you're like, God, use me. Make a difference through me. I want to just tell you, before you say that, here's what he's going to ask you to do. Something that's really, really difficult for you. And you know what? God's asked me to do a lot of really hard things. Never once, ever, have I ever regretted doing the hard things that Jesus Christ has asked me to do. I have a lot of regrets in my life, and it's almost always when I despised authority and I gave in to my own pleasures. Those are almost all of my regrets in life lie. And I am the most happiest when I'm under authority and when I'm in control of my body. My, uh, my daughter and I had a funny conversation. I actually can't remember if I preached on this or not, so forgive me if it's redundant, but um, uh, we had a conversation about happiness. I said, El, are you happier when you obey or disobey? She said, obey. I said, okay. Um, does disobeying ever make you happy? She says, at first. Okay, does it ever end in happiness? Never. Can you think of any time where you've ever disobeyed and you've been happy? No, not once. So why do you disobey? Like, she didn't see it coming. She's still young enough that she doesn't know, like, where I'm going, right? I'm like, so wouldn't it make sense, like, if you just were happy and obeyed? And she's like, well, when you say it like that. And then there was a study that I had read, and it was a study that the happiest children are obedient children. Isn't that interesting? That the kids who have the happiest um, lives, who have the highest um, success factors, um, one of the major traits that they have, other than hard work, is they are obedient to their parents. So I shared the study with my daughter. And I said, isn't it interesting that even psychology tells us the happy kids submit and obey to their parents. And uh, so my punchline for her was basically, so can I remind you of this whenever you look to disobey? Like, is this, do you really want to be unhappy right now? So this is actually a phrase with my daughter and I. Whenever she's disobeying, I'm like, I see that you want to be unhappy. Is that what you're telling me right now? You want to be unhappy. I don't want to be unhappy. Control the tone. If you say that again, you're going to be unhappy, okay? Like... <laughs> Do you want to be happy or not? You know? And it's interesting because I'm appealing to her basis desires. What I'm trying to do is form her and shape her so that this muscle of self-control grows and gets stronger and stronger and stronger. 
Here's my question for you. Will you live a distinct life? Will you live a life where the Lord, as he looks, his eyes go to and fro, back and forth, trying to find someone whose heart, not perfect, but it's toward him. Someone who lives under authority, has self-control over their life. Will you do that? And I think if you will do that, the Lord will intervene and he will begin to ask you to do hard things because there's a lot to do in this world to build the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And some of them require courage and they require boldness. And I wanna be the guy that Jesus says he can do it. Not because he can do the hard thing, but because his heart is submissive to authority and he's in control of his body. He loves me. His heart is for me. Let's take a minute and pray. Father, I'm really grateful for Jesus. I look back on so many regrets in my life. I've run away from authority and I've given myself over to what I want. And God, I don't want to do that. I know I speak for all of us when I say we just don't want to do that and some of us are just feeling enslaved by sin. God, would you show us how to access supernatural self-control? Would you show us how to count the cost? Would you give us power, help, conviction, encouragement? Would you teach us how to utilize not just your spirit, not just self-control, but your word and the people of God? All of these resources at our disposal. And God, here's my desire. When you look at Village Church, you would find a group of people that you can use because we will do whatever you say. And we will not give our bodies and lives over to the sensuality of this world. God, that's my desire. And so Lord, if, if you need to convict, whether it's the authority piece or it's the sexual immorality piece, God, we just invite your Holy Spirit to do what you need to do. Some of us are very resistant right now. Overcome our resistance. But Spirit, I pray you wouldn't leave us discouraged. You build and form Christ in us. Would you give us a vision of who you want to make us to be? We need your help. We need your encouragement. We need your vision. We need your heart. We need you to do a miracle inside of us. And God, as we come to this communion table, as we remember the cross, we are so, so grateful because every one of us in this room who's trusted in Jesus Christ, we have struggled massively with sin. Some of us more loudly than others and some of us more quietly, but all of us are sinners who have massively fallen short of the glory of God. I wanna, I wanna say thank you on behalf of all of us that there are second chances, third chances, fourth chances, not just that we get to go to heaven, but that there's still an opportunity for us to live a distinct life and for you to pluck us out and to say, I got a job for you. And Lord, whatever that is, whether it's building an ark <laughs> or something that is as difficult, whether it means losing friends and family, whatever it is, we invite you to ask us to do hard things. And Lord, when we struggle and we wrestle, we will look to the cross and we will remember what you have done for us. God, as we remember what you've done for us, would you convict us, but also fill us with awe and gratitude and how good you have been to us and your forgiveness that is so lavishly bestowed on us. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.